Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Elizabeth Lesser. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I recently discovered Elizabeth's work and bought all of her books in one go, read them all over the space of a month and just consumed everything. And I love that exciting feeling of discovering someone new. She is the author of several best-selling books, including Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, The Human Story Changes, Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, and Marrow, Love, Loss and What Matters Most. She is the co-founder of Omega Institute, which is internationally recognised for its workshops and conferences in the wellness, spirituality, creativity and social change space. She has given two very popular TED Talks and she is one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, which is a collection of 100 leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. In this episode, we discuss all of her books, being a spiritual leader, being a feminist, women and power, and why we need to reframe what power even means, her incredible talent for bringing memoir and research together in some of the most powerful books I've ever read. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation. So enjoy, grab a cup of tea, and I hope you get something from it. Thanks so much for listening. So I'm very thrilled to have Elizabeth Lesser on Control-Alt-Delete. This is a real honour. I'm such a huge fan of your work and I just can't wait to talk to you about all your brilliant books and all of the work that I've recently discovered. It's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's just a pleasure to be with you. So before I ask you about your brilliant books, because I've read them all and there's so much to talk about, but I have heard you on other podcasts say that as a young child, you you knew that you wanted to ask big questions and you had an instinct that there was something else out there. And I reckon a lot of people could probably relate to that a little bit. But could you talk to me a little bit about that, how you knew? Because what you're doing now, obviously, it makes sense in hindsight. But when was the first time you knew something was slightly more curious about you? Well, you know, I came from a family. My parents were both had been raised in very religious homes. My mother in a Christian science home, my father, uh, an orth- not Orthodox, but a very strict Jewish home. And they both rejected religion almost with a religious zeal. They became like religious atheists and very intellectual. Um, and so in our family, the, the sort of equation was if you are, intelligent, then you would not have any spiritual leanings at all. That was all just ridiculous. I just wasn't born that way. I was born, I don't, I can't, I would imagine it like age three. I was scared of like, what happens when you die? Where did I come from? And I desperately wanted to talk to people about this, but I couldn't do it in the family. Sometimes when I got older, like seven, eight, nine, I would go with my neighbors to any church they belonged to, Catholic mass, synagogue, anything people were going to. I I wanted only because I just wanted to talk to people about what seemed to me the most interesting subjects. Who are we? How do you live in this uh, time between birth and death? What's a good person? And um, so the minute I could follow my own soul's compass like when I left home and went to college I started reading spiritual books I started this was when 
gurus were washing up on the shores of America, I started like going to what was then very weird yoga classes and meditation classes. And um, so I've been at it my whole life, mostly because I didn't have it as a child. So interesting. And obviously with the Omega Institute that you founded in 1977, is that right? So you were 23. And that's so young, isn't it, to start something like that? Like I definitely didn't come to my spiritual path. And I mean, I'm 32 now and I feel like I'm very new to it. And I found that so interesting that you at 23 started this amazing thing that's still running. Well, when I co-founded it with my then husband, it wasn't what it is now. I mean, now, at least pre-COVID and hopefully as we recover, um, we would have 20, 30,000 people come to our campus every season. Back then when we started, it was just a bunch of kids who thought, ooh, so many interesting subjects are coming our way from meditation and yoga to healthy eating and alternative forms of healing and cross-cultural arts and um, how do you combine your inner work with your activism in the world. These were all just sort of bubbling up in the culture. They were not a big thing at the time. And so our early years were, you know, a couple of hundred people came. It's, It's that we hit a wave at the right time and stuck with it and rode it through. It's interesting that word guru, isn't it? Because I, I've heard you say elsewhere as well that you have a really good bullshit detector now of authenticity. And even that word is kind of overused now, but true, real, real people who are genuine and, and care and and they're saying what they really mean. And I just wondered, what have you learned? What can you tell us? Because even now on the internet, you know, we're being bombarded with, some, you know, things outside of just Oprah, which was just everything. Now everyone's kind of feeling like maybe they're a guru. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know, on some level, everyone is a guru. You know, that word, that word has its roots in a religion and all it means is teacher. And, but it's taken on, of course, all the trappings of what you're talking about, false gurus and people. It's, it's the biggest irony in the world. You know, the message of most spiritual teachers is you have the answer within you. You don't need me. I will help you for a little bit along the way to uncover the same thing that's in all of us. It's no, it's no great mystery. You know, we're all so similar. People, have often asked me, well, what have you learned being for 40 plus years around so many teachers from so many different disciplines? And I I think they're waiting for me to like go, oh, and the clouds open and I'm going to finally do the lightning bolt. But what I have learned is that even these people touched by some kind of insight, they're just human beings. They like go to the bathroom and lose their keys and have bad days and good days and have an ego and are working on their ego. Sometimes the very best teachers are the people who have failed the most at the subject matter they're teaching. You know, I remember when I first started being at at Omega and I was in my 20s and I'd be like horrified and heartbroken. The, The person teaching about relationships 
ends up being on his third marriage. And I'm like, and I'm trying to hold on to my first marriage. And I'm like, wait a minute here. I'm following you and you've had failed marriages. But it's, it's what you do with the failure and how you recover and how you learn from it so you don't keep making mistakes. That's what hopefully the teacher can show us. But then we learn it ourselves. We incorporate it and we be it. The point is to be it. Mm-hmm. The point isn't like to get the newest, coolest yoga pants or to know all the correct words about mindfulness. Like that's, that's where a bullshit detector comes in really handy. Mm-hmm. Like what's really going to A, help me wake up and B, be something of a contribution to the world. Is this path doing that for me? Or am I just accumulating more uh, of an unauthentic cover over my pure, shining soul that has nothing to do whatsoever with anything but taking the veils away and being yourself? I love that because taking the wrong path or following the wrong teacher can sometimes be like the most amazing teaching moment that's definitely happened for me but a lot of it is so much of self-instinct isn't it and I've found I'm very aware of other people's energies now like I'll walk past someone and just be like whoa like that person's mood has just hit me and they haven't even spoken to me and so a lot of navigating each other I feel like we have to be more in tune with ourselves first it's a we work on ourselves alone and in the world at the same time and hope and hopefully we're doing both of them as well as we can. Mm. And just a bit of a walk down memory lane for people listening, because I know that you did work with Oprah and you made a lot of her uh, some courses and kind of audio series and made so much of this so accessible for all of us. Um, People probably don't know necessarily that you were behind some of that. I don't know. But what was it like at the time working on those projects? Well, my happy spot is working behind the scenes. Like I have, I have done a lot of teaching, but it's, it's not my comfort zone. I I would prefer to write and to um, elevate other people's work. That's just my nature. And um, it's taken me a long time to make peace with that, that, you know, like I thought for a while, well, I know how to teach. I should be a teacher, but I'm sort of an introvert who knows how to be an extrovert. But introversion is is my sweet spot. Um, so yes, I didn't. I knew Oprah as well as anyone knows Oprah. I'd watched her television show. I'd been an admirer of hers. And then one day, I was driving in my car. This was probably fifteen years ago or more. And um, my cell phone rang, picked it up. It was the middle of a snowstorm and I was trying to really concentrate on the road and a voice on the other line says, hello, this is Oprah. (laughs) And of course I thought it was my friend pretending to be Oprah. So I hung up and (laughs) because I was trying to concentrate on the road, I was like, don't bother me now. And so it rings again. It's like, hello, this is Oprah. And it was Oprah. And so I pulled to the side of the road and that began a very long, that continues to this day, working relationship where she knew that many of the books she loved very much. The first one I worked with her on was Eckhart Tolle's book, uh, A New Earth. She knew that many, many of her millions of followers 
just wouldn't understand that book if she said, read the book. They needed some help through it. And someone had told her about my work at Omega and also my first book, The Seeker's Guide. And she wanted me to help her. And so we took Eckhart Tolle's book and turned it into one of the first webinars. This was probably 10 years ago. In fact, so many people tried to get on the first night. It was every Monday night for 10 weeks, covering each chapter of that book. So many people tried to get on the first night. The entire internet in Chicago uh, froze. And millions and millions of people have watched this this, uh, 10-part series now. And it was so wonderful and so... um, fulfilling for both of us that we've we've I've helped her with other produce other books to courses like that and I've done a lot of writing for her and I had my own radio show for a while on her Sirius XM channel when she had one so it's been an honor a pleasure all of that. <laughs> oh, that's so amazing. And I reckon most people can remember their almost like that gateway drug moment of <laughs> I'm in, I'm I'm going into this new world of discovery. And it's it's really exciting. And I know that, you know, we have to take it slowly. It's not just like an overnight solution. No, no, nothing. No one book is going to like make everything instantly okay. But to even just get a little s- sprinkle of what that the whole world opens up is just amazing so how incredible that you reach so many people um so i i did come to your work like many people maybe through broken open which is your first memoir i noticed that it had a re-release in 2020 with a kind of slightly refreshed cover was that to do with what we've all been through in 2020 and how relevant it is or a coincidence well it was um just about to hit its uh 20 year mark or 15, 15 year mark. And it was, the pandemic had not happened yet when I wrote that new introduction. Um, it was more, you know, the, the racial reckoning in America and the world was bubbling up and so much was going on. You know, we forget the pandemic has been so all consuming to the whole world that we forget that there was a lot of stuff happening for women for um, racial relations all over the world. Uh, So much has been, I mean, we are living in very heightened times. So the publishing company thought Broken Open, which the subtitle is How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. They were like, "Um, these are kind of difficult times. (laughs) Let's re-release it with a new introduction. And, you know, difficult times never go out of style in our own lives and in the world. So there's never a, a lack of things to write about. Yeah, because I think with um, with some with some books, when you are reading case studies, there, there are some people in your book, Broken Open, even though it's very much your story as well, you use examples of people who have gone through really awful times. And it could be, though, that a few years ago, someone would read that and think, oh, that's a terrible thing that's happened, but my life's kind of steady I feel like we've all been thrust into something now and how naive to think that you could ever be immune to a hard time it really is for everyone isn't it the book it is and that's you could take that as bad news oh everyone will be broken and everyone will have a chance to open from 
that trauma. You could take that as, oh, life's a bitch and then you die kind of way of looking at the world. Or you can take it as the great equalizer and the great uniter. Um, we are so in this together. I, I think something that changed dramatically from when I first wrote Broken Open are things like Facebook and Instagram. They didn't exist when I first wrote Broken Open. And I write a lot about how we keep secrets from each other. And the big secret is I'm confused. I'm suffering. I think I look terrible. I'm overweight. My life isn't working. I don't have enough money. We think we're the only ones struggling with these issues. And so we keep them from each other. Rumi, the great poet, called this the open secret, the tragedy of the open secret. We keep the very basicness of being human. We try to pretend that's not happening to us. And we're so lonely because of that. And I think it's only been exaggerated by things like Instagram and Facebook, where we curate only the best part of our life. And all our pictures are airbrushed and our children look like they're so happy and perfect and our homes are beautiful, even though if you really took a picture, the chairs on the patio are upturned and the garden is a mess. But you just like we're trying to present this one tiny aspect of ourselves. So I wrote Broken Open as a way of coming out myself as saying like, I'm getting, you know, I wrote a lot about getting divorced and being a single mother and how much shame there was in all of that. And so many people wrote to me about, you helped me have less shame at being an imperfect human being of struggling. And that's really almost 90% of the journey toward happiness is putting down this struggle to be perfect, putting down this sense that I'm alone and there's something wrong with me and doing what I call in the book, being a, just a fellow bozo on the bus, you know, getting on the bus that says bozo on the front and joining your other half-baked human beings and having a good time because none of us are who we try to present to each other um, when we're hiding. Yes. Yeah, I definitely feel that this time has done that to me even more. I definitely can see now how exhausting it was to try and pretend everything was fine all the time. And I remember actually when I spoke to Glennon Doyle on this podcast, she said, the jig is up. And I was like, that's that's so it. Like, the jig is up for everyone. <laughs> no one's okay, you know. And some people, most of us actually, don't want to let go of that jig. It's terrifying to let go of that jig because when we do, we have to look at some of the stuff about ourselves that we might want to change. When we stay on the surface, we don't have to look beneath. And beneath, way beneath, is freedom and light and happiness. Not all the time. But that, that is our soul. That is our core. Mm -hmm. And what's covering that core is this, you know, exhausting, as you say, attempt not to look at what's going on in the depth. Sometimes what's going on in the depth is actually something you can change, you know, like the way you treat your body or 
a marriage that isn't working or a job you need to leave. But sometimes what's under there are traumas that happen to us that want to be brought into the light. Mm -hmm. They're like our, our little bedraggled child's living in there. And they're like, please come and look at me and talk to me and clean me up and join me. Um, it's hard. It's hard work. People think of self-help sort of like, let's go to the spa. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go to the spa with my friends and we do our nails. Like, that's wonderful part of self-help. That's not what it's really about. It's a heroic journey to claim the darker parts of yourself and bring them forth and heal them. Wow, yeah. And that's why I love your work so much. I've got to say, when I, even now speaking to you, I feel light and I feel good and your your energy is incredible. But you know, reading your memoirs, reading Marrow as well, for example, you know, you're, you write about very difficult times. You, you write so movingly. It's a difficult read in places. This isn't a lighthearted book necessarily. You went through a lot with your sister and it's a reminder that those two things can exist together. They almost have to. Yeah. That book, Marrow, um, I knew when I was writing it, it would not find as large an audience that, let's say, Broken Open or my new book, Cassandra, is finding. I, I, I knew it was one of those things for any of you who are writers who are listening. I had to write this book. I just had to. I don't know why. And, and I was aware a book about cancer and death. And a lot of people aren't going to want to read this thing. And that's been OK. But the people it has found, especially people who have lost those they love. Um, Cause I was my sister's bone marrow donor. That's why I named the book marrow. And it's about the process we went through um, to do the transplant. And then um, her life, the year that she lived afterwards, I'm not, I'm not um, spoiler alerting. Cause I tell at the very beginning that she did die after a year. So it's a, it's a story of how both of us confronted what it was that had kept us from being the friends we, we knew we could have been our whole life, looking at our relationship and cleaning it up so that hopefully it would help the, the bone marrow transplant work. And then that year where we really fell in love, in a way we could have our whole life. And I wrote it more for people even if it's not about cancer or losing someone, can we clean up our relationships now? Mm. Because anything could happen as we're all seeing right now in the pandemic. What's holding us back from being honest and having those difficult conversations with people we actually do love? Um, it doesn't have to be a sibling, it can be a colleague, a friend, your mate, your child. Having those hard conversations, they're actually magic. They, they are, to me, the real magic in the world is when we tell the truth to each other in loving ways, not as a hammer. And with someone who wants to play with us, you can't do it to someone who doesn't want to play with you. Mm. And the book goes through how to do that and, and what I did and 
It's a be- beautiful book. And I've heard you describe that it did come flooding out. And this was a memoir that you almost wrote, you know, in it still. And that's why it's such a special book. And it's it's <clears throat> incredible. And that's what writing is all about. And I loved it. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about your new book as well, Cassandra Speaks. Why, when women are the storytellers, the human story changes. It's, gosh, it's, I, I actually listened to you on a YouTube video event with Jane Fonda. And I felt like I needed to go out and just, I felt like very, very powerful after hearing you both speak. It had like a physical, I had a physical reaction to it. And this is how I felt reading the book as well. Yeah. Thank you for that feeling. Cause that's the truth. I was just thinking about that this morning um, because I spent most of the pandemic talking about the book because it came out in September 2020. And I thought, oh, no, that's a way to kill a book, a pandemic. I can't go on a book tour. But actually, what happened to most authors whose books came out during the pandemic is that I never stopped talking about it. Like, because everyone, you know, you you have a very successful podcast, but everyone and her cousin now has a podcast. And I just decided I'm going to say yes to everything at the beginning. And it was an avalanche of like, blah, 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 all day long for months and months. And I took a break in June and July, and I'm just starting up again. So I was thinking, I'm a little rusty about talking about this book. And, um, and I thought, you know, why did I write this book? And then I remembered, I had to. I've been sort of writing it my whole life. I'm a feminist. I've been a feminist my whole life. At about the same stage as becoming a spiritual seeker as a child, I had four, a family of four daughters and a very domineering father. And I was the only girl in the family, my mother, my grandmother, my great aunt, four girls, and my father. We all lived together. And I was the only one who would stand up to my father. I don't know why. From the age of a little girl, I'd be like, why do we all have to do what you want to do? Why can't I stay home instead of going hiking? You know, I, and by the time I got to college, besides um, meditation and yoga being part of the culture, so was activism and so was feminism. Very strong time in American history where women were standing up and marching and women's empowerment and women's rights. And it really struck home for me coming from where I came from. So I've been involved in uh, women's empowerment and also uh, cultural change and working for women politicians and things like that my whole life. And I, at Omega Institute, the, um, the conference and retreat center that I helped found, uh, forever we've done conferences about women, for women and about women in history and women in culture. And there's one conference that I put together that still goes on today every year called Women and Power. I put these two words together 20 years ago because it made me uncomfortable. Like, I didn't want to think of myself as powerful. It felt like it went against everything women were supposed to be. Warm, nice, kind, compassionate, but not powerful. 
But I knew that was bullshit because I wanted to be powerful. And I actually was powerful. And I thought, why? This was such a disconnect within women that we secretly wanted power. All power means is the ability to change your life, to make your life what you want it to be, to mold culture and communities and families. It just means agency. And we all want that. We, we all have within us the rays of the sun that want to shine. And so I thought, okay, it agitates me and it excites me. Maybe other people will want to come to this too. And at the first Women in Power conference, I invited Anita Hill, who was still a big name in American culture. She had stood up uh, at the um, Supreme Court hearings for Justice Clarence Thomas. She had said, this man should not be a Supreme Court justice because he sexually harassed me and other women. It was the first time any woman on the big stage was talking about sexual harassment. It didn't even have a name at that time. So I thought that's a powerful woman. And I invited Eve Ensler, who wrote the Vagina Monologues and allowed women to actually say the word vagina. And that really, like that's a form of power and other people I invited. And a couple of hundred people came and I thought, wow, this is interesting. The next year, 600 people came. The next year we had to rent a ballroom in New York City. That's where I met Jane Fonda, she came. 2,000 women from around the world came. And ever since it's, it's and many, many women, women's conferences like that started blossoming in the world. And I, I gave a keynote every year at that conference. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll see about turning those keynotes into a book. But of course, books have their way with you. No book is ever easy, nor is it what you think it's going to be when you start it, especially because so much has changed. There's all this talk in younger generations, your generation, about gender fluidity, trans people. What does it even mean to be a woman and a man? How relevant is that anymore? Several times writing it, I wanted to like give the advance back to the publishing company because it's a very confusing topic. But I decided to go back into the old stories from the Bible and Greek myths and literature and look at how those stories really were just told from the point of view of men, because history isn't what happened, it's who tells the story. And, uh, and look at those stories and how they've affected us, and then talk about the new stories that we're writing. That's why it was so powerful to read. I, it, you know, it, it reminded me of, I remember when I first discovered feminism when I was much, much younger and I, and it felt like I'd put on a new pair of glasses and I was seeing everything differently. And I felt like reading your book had like sharpened the glasses. Like I was like looking around and I was like, oh, that's why I feel shame about that particular thing. That's why that fairy tale that I read when I was five doesn't make sense. And it's, <laughs> it's, like that unlearning and that unpicking, God, it's like shedding yeah. a skin. It feels really good. Yeah. So thank you for writing that because it's it's a real beast of a book. And um, I wanted to ask actually about this, the difference between you talk about fight or flight and you talk about tend and befriend. And I've heard of those phrases in like the animal kingdom and what we do when we're stressed and what we do in communities. But 
Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the difference between the two and, and how they are quite gendered? Yeah, I don't only talk about old Bible stories and old literature stories. I also talk about a few different science stories in the book. And one of these stories is this story we've all come to believe that under stress, human beings have two ways of reacting. We either fight, we aggress, we lash out, or we retreat, we flee. You know, we emotionally detach, we numb. So there's two ways of dealing with stress and conflict, fight, flight. And that's, of course, what I believed forever, even though in my mind, I often thought, hey, wait a second, my first reaction in a meeting where things are going terribly is not to fight. Sometimes it's to kind of, I want to like help people talk or something, but like, no, fight or flight. So when I started looking into that, I saw, noticed that in the 1930s, there was a Harvard professor, Walter Cannon, and he was a a doctor of psychology at Harvard, and he wanted to, to actually test what happens to the animal human, the sapien, under stress. So he brought people into his lab, and he simulated stressful experiences, and he measured their blood and their hormones, and he found out under stress, fight or flight. Well, in the, ni- in the early 2000s, a woman, a uh, doctor of psychology at UCLA, Dr. Shelley Taylor, she and her colleagues noticed something. Doctor, um, the, the, the doctor from Harvard, Cannon, Dr. Cannon, he had only brought men into the lab. He had done those tests only on men because up until very recently, most medical tests were only done on men. You know how they're finding out that women have just as many heart attacks as men, but our bodies actually show different symptoms when we're about to have a heart attack. Who knew? They only did the tests on men. So she decided, Dr. Shelley Taylor, to replicate the tests of Dr. Cannon, but bring women subjects in and measure their hormones and their blood chemicals when um, the simulated stressful images and situations were being shown and described. And what did she discover? Yes, women do have some fight or flight. There is some elevation of that, but primarily in women, something she ended up calling tend and befriend is what she measured in their blood under stressful situations, women have an instinct to tend to the vulnerable in the community. How are the kids? How are the older people? Come on, everybody. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to tend to you under stress. And also under stressful situations, women create circles of befriending. You know, you have a hard day. You're at the end of the day, you're like freaked out, exhausted. What's your first instinct? To call your friends oh my God, you're not going to believe what happened today. This blah, blah, blah. You talk, you talk, you talk it out in these circles of befriending. And in doing so, you purge yourself of a lot of the um, desire to, to attack or to retreat. So yes, it is gendered. It is hormonal. So much of what women exhibit in life has to do with nurture. It has nothing to do with our blood, but a lot of it does have to do with hormones. And it's 
disingenuous for us to say women and men are exactly the same. We're not. And that's great. What is, what does have to change is what we value in the culture. Why don't we value the tend and befriend aspect of humanity? Men have it in them too, but it's been absolutely knocked out of them because men must prove their masculinity all the time. They must prove they're good at fighting and aggressing and being the warrior. And what's been so exciting to me recently at the Olympics, watching Simone Biles own not only her fight, but also her tend. Mm-hmm. It's been to me a sign of a whole person. Yeah, I'm a warrior. I know how to win. I know how to compete. But I'm also a tender and a befriender. The way she stayed with her team and befriended them, even as she admitted her human frailty, to me, she's a superhero. Mm-hmm. And she's the new leader. And she's the new hero's journey. And that, that is why I wrote the book, Cassandra Speaks, for us to be able to say, when we see a new kind of hero, And I think the whole world actually rose up and mostly accepted what she was doing and saw its brilliance. Of course, the old style athletes and warriors are horrified by it and she's a quitter. But I don't think that's where we're heading. I think we are heading into the new superheroes being both tenders and befrienders and fighters and fleers and whole people. I totally agree. And I, I feel like I could do this podcast for five million hours talking about the book. Honestly, it's so it's hard to touch on it without just wanting to tell everyone about all of it because um, you know, it's so fantastic. So any you know, people that are listening, go and buy the book. There's so much in it. And you're so right. What power is is not what we think it is from stereotypical egotistical politicians. It's it's got a new there's always been a different type of power and now we're seeing it in different ways. We're seeing the Sir Richard Bransons and Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos going off to space and spending gazillion billion dollars on that old fight or flight. And then we're seeing on the other side people saying, wait a minute, that's where we want to spend our money? Can't we tend and befriend this earth before we go and pollute other planets? So it's not over. The work isn't over. But for women to stand up as leaders and say, I don't just want to get my foot in that old door. I want to do power differently. That's what's exciting to me. Really exciting. And I I love the topic of how we're redefining what success means. It's not working all hours. It's not necessarily having your face on a billboard this is like quieter powerful personal success that can change the world and it's really exciting and I love the book so much so thank you for talking about it I thought we could end on talking about activism and something that I loved in the book that you said you said there's the word innovist you you talk about being an innovist versus an activist you're obviously both is it's a word you made up I think and it means kind of looking inside as well as doing all of the outside stuff. And I I don't know about you, but I look around at the moment and think there's so many amazing activists, but I also think the, you know, a lot of activists look like they're about to burn out at any minute. And 
they look tired and I almost want to just reach out and say, you know, you don't have to do this alone and please look after yourself. Would, would you be able to talk a little bit about that and how you can keep yourself going inside as well as outside? I love that you brought that up. Um, I came up with the word innervism, innervist. Years ago, we would bring activists, peace activists, racial reconciliation activists, um, all sorts of people working to better the world. We'd bring them for free to retreats to Omega because we thought we don't want to only serve the inner seekers. We want to maybe infuse activism with that sense. And I remember thinking, wow, these peace activists are angry people. I've never seen so many angry people. They don't even know how to talk to each other. They're just talking over each other. And I wanted to come up with a word that wouldn't make them think that self-help and mindfulness were just sort of like woo-woo, you know, spa-driven words. I wanted them to understand that, like, unless you do the inner work, unless you work on your burnout, and not only that, on your own ego, masquerading as wanting to help the world. Um, Your work is not going to be as effective. This will help your work in the world be effective, softening your edges, taking care of yourself, stepping back when you're about to burn out, um, taking better care of the people in your group. You know, Nietzsche, the great uh, philosopher said, when fighting monsters, be careful you don't turn into a monster. And we all know that just because you're working for justice in the world doesn't necessarily mean you're being a just father or mother or friend or mate. You know, I used to watch myself like this. I'd be all like the saintly person at work. And then I'd go home and be a bitchy wife and a bad mom. And I was like, wait a second, I need to I need to hook these things up here. I need to walk my talk as much as possible. None of us are going to be saints. Well, maybe some of us are. I'm not. But um, innervism, meditation, taking care of our bodies, sleep, nourishing ourselves, looking at our rough edges that need to be softened some. This is really important work. The world needs us to do it. Thank you so much for explaining that so brilliantly. I love it. And I think this idea of spirituality meeting activism, they feel like separate things, but they're not at all. They're so combined and activism can be done in a different way, just as power can. And it's fascinating. So thank you so much for all of your work. And I just, yeah, I've loved speaking to you. Everyone listening, I'll leave all the links to Elizabeth's books in the show notes. And thank you so, so much again for doing this. Thank you for doing what you do. It's it's very, very important and you do it so beautifully. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>